Hi, welcome to Sweetman Podcast. I'm your host, I'm Simon Sweetman, and this must be episode 179, where I had a conversation that I've been looking forward to because I hoped to schedule this a couple of years ago. Uh, I had a conversation with Jan Preston. She's a musician, a piano player. She's a, uh, a film composer. Um, she is the younger sister of Gaylene Preston, uh, the filmmaker. And uh, you might remember a couple of years ago, I, I spoke with, uh, with Gaylene, and so we talked a little bit about Jan as part of that because they have worked together um, Jan has provided the, the soundtrack, the score to some of Gaylene's films. She's also worked uh, independently of, of Gaylene in the film industry. Um, Jan's got an amazing backstory. I reckon she was the musical director for Red Mole Theatre Group. Uh, they were a, an impressive, uh, quirky touring entity in the 70s, formed by the late Alan Brunton. Uh, she went from there to jamming with Midge Marsden to joining the band Coup d'etat with Harry Lyon from Hello Sailor, their big hit of course, Doctor I Like Your Medicine. But you can hear Jan singing as well as her keyboard playing on one of their other hit singles, No Music On My Radio. Um, and then, you know, her whole background was as a classically trained pianist, so it was like she was taking these steps to remove herself from that through through sort of theatre and pop music to rock. Then she moved to Australia, where she's basically been ever since, uh, with, with, with regular visits back to New Zealand for work. Um, so she started doing the film scores over there, and slowly but surely she evolved into a blues and a boogie-woogie pianist and she's released a handful of solo albums she regularly tours uh, so she was in Wellington um, to start a um, New Zealand tour of about 20 dates I'll have a link to she's as you're hearing this she will have started those shows but there's more to go so I'll have a link to that um, but just to uh, I'd met Jan once briefly years ago and so this was probably my first proper connection with her as well as my first proper interview with her and I, I really enjoyed the time um, speaking with her and, and just hearing about all these things she's done and, and her philosophy and um, yeah it was a gr- I thought it was a great chat so um, enjoy this my thanks as always to Yeastie Boys, La Pitti Chocolat and Tea Leaf Tea this is me chatting with pianist, film composer, musician Jan Preston. When you broke your wrists it must have been um, right around that time, I was sitting here interviewing your sister Gaylene. Oh. So she told me about it, and it had only just happened. Right. So, because I because I said oh, I really must talk to Jan one day, and because um, I met you once after one of your shows way back, very briefly. But I'd, I'd always wanted to talk to you. But she said, Oh well, you can talk to her now. She can't play the piano, <laughs> <laughs> you know. And then I, and I was sort of like, What? And she, then she explained. And well, uh, in her words, what had happened, and um, because we were talking about the um, the Helen Clark documentary and right. and, and, yeah, yeah. and how great your music was as part of that, and and all of that stuff, and then she said, "Oh, she's bro-. so." How did you do it? Uh, look, I was rushing and distracted, basically, on a Monday morning, um, going round the corner to see my son, mm. my adult son, and help him with something, thinking about him. Mm. And um, in my defence, it was a speed hump, but in a driveway, so it wasn't actually painted. Mm. And I just never saw it and went, wow. boom, directly over it and broke it. In fact, not one, but, but both wrists. Um, and now, yeah. now, I mean, this is like um, the stuff of nightmares for someone with your job. <laughs> you know, you're a pianist. So when does the realisation, obviously your first thing is I'm, I'm hurt. And when you get over that, when is the when do you start having thoughts about man? I've just 
knocked out the tools of my trade. Yeah, well, fairly, fairly quickly, <laughs> mm. Simon, as mm. you can imagine. Mm. I mean, I, I think throughout the whole thing, from the moment it happened until the moment I was playing, um, indeed, now, mm. totally, normally, mm. I've got metal plates in my wrist that it's had no impact, no impact whatsoever on my playing, ultimately. But mm. you don't know that. Mm. And I think for any of us that have a traumatic, it certainly was a traumatic event, at the end of the day, it's a headset, it's a mm -hmm. mindset. Mm. You have to stop your brain somehow from sort of catastrophizing mm -hmm. um, and going, I'll never play again, my life's over. I mean, the interesting thing was I thought, oh no, you know, I'll have to cancel all these shows, which of course I did, mm. um, and my career's over. And then, like a split second later, I thought, but what am I going to do? Not in terms of my career, in terms of my life. Yeah, how are you going to fill your time? What are you going to well, do? Yeah. The thought of not... Who are you going to be? Who am I now going yes. to be? That's yeah. right, because the thought of not being able to sit and play, I just couldn't imagine that person I've played from when I was four years old, you know, just mm. often, mostly every day, and it's my expression, my release, it's a, it's physical, it's sort of mm. like being an athlete, really, mm. and so, um, but anyway, uh, even when I was in, in plaster and then splints, I kind of thought, I mean, it sounds like the very worst thing that could happen to a piano player, bright break both their wrists mm. but I kept thinking when I could just plonk notes um, I think I'll be alright because the reality is that we play the piano with our arms and our fingers mm. there's not a lot of wrist except to sort of keep the hand on mm. but it's not like you know bowing a, a violin or even drumming perhaps there mm. isn't a lot of wrist in it yeah, so it's, it's yeah, yeah yeah it is. yeah if I'd broken a shoulder or a bunch of fingers or something I think it it would yeah. be much worse yeah yeah but an amazing story to <laughs> to have as part of your <laughs> as part of your overall story now I mean you know I guess it happened that there's no right time to break both your wrists but in a way also you had had such a career that if it was career ending, that's another whole thing to consider. But you had done the work. There's, yeah. There's there's a lifetime of gigs and albums already there, and now you get to add to that. Yeah, that's right. You do get a second chance. My latest record, Play It, is called mm. Play It Again, Jan. Also, it, it's a cliche, Simon, but you know you don't miss your water till your well runs dry. Mm. Mm. I mean, when you have something that's there all the time, all of your life, no matter what's lasted longer than you know relationships yeah. and, and, and anything, um, this this instrument and this expression and the physicality of those black and white keys, when when you can't do it. Mm. You can't do it. It's taken away from you. And then when you come back to it, you value it even more because mm -mm. you felt what it was like to not be able to. Mm. Mm. And I'd never, ever felt that ever in my life before. If mm. I didn't play the piano that day, it was because I didn't want to or I didn't get to do it or whatever, not because I couldn't. Mm -mm. Mm. Well, let's go all the way back to when you were four or around about. Um, why the piano? And was that the first musical instrument? Yeah, it was the only musical instrument. Yeah. I'm not a multi-instrumentalist, Simon. I've played with lots of amazing musicians and bands that mm. can play kind of guitar, bass, drums, and 
you know, kind of clarinet and sax and everything else. Um, I'm not like that. Mm, if mm. it doesn't have 88 black and white things in front of me, yeah. I, I can't. I'm not very good on tambourine. Yeah. Literally, <laughs> yeah, I'm yeah. not. Um, but you are a singer. I mean, you are a multi-instrumentalist in, in, that, in that sense. You know, you're in a, you, you do have two instruments. Yeah, yeah, no, I am a singer. I have to get used to that, saying that I am, because I've yeah. always imagined myself as a piano player who sort of beaver didn't turn up one day and I sort of <laughs> stood in, you know. Um, but, yeah, I guess the piano, because it was there mm. and because my older sister Gaylene played piano and my older brother, Ted, mm. and um, Gaylene showed me mm. um, things and I just went to it like... You know, moth to the flame. I just absolutely mm, loved it. Mm, mm, mm. And because you're the baby of the family. Yeah. Yeah. And so you've got these siblings that go off and do interesting things as well. And so are they, like, I mean, Gaylene, she goes to England and, you know, are you aware of what she's doing and is that an influence to you? And as you're growing up, like, as she's, I guess getting interested in film and still involved in music and the kind of counterculture, how connected to that are you? Well, very, I mm. suppose, mm. Is, is the short answer. I mean, Gaylene, I, I thought everybody's older sister was like Gaylene. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I thought that was normal. Yeah. And I see early photos, and indeed in my latest um, show, 88 Pianos, mm. I have known, I have some images of Gaylene and I together with, mm. with our brother. And she she directed me, really, from, mm. when, from when I was, you know, come here and I'll show you, see, these are the notes on the piano, yeah. stand there, look there. And I loved being directed by yeah. Gaylene, and I love working with her as a composer. She's mm. a very, very good director, the magnificent director. So, and when at the last moment she didn't go, to Teachers College. Mm. I think Ardmore or wherever she was going to go, she went, she said, no, I'm going to art school. Mm. And that was shock horror and came home and the, you know, the, the uni holidays wearing a, a purple miniskirt or whatever <laughs> it was. Then, of course, I wanted a purple miniskirt. Yeah. So, um, and then, of course, she was in England, so I wasn't directly involved yeah, with her. Yeah. But, yes, it made it easier for me mm. after I'd been at classical music school in Auckland to say, well, no, I'm not going to do that, and I've mm. shaved my head and I've joined a theatre group in Wellington. And by then, with everything Gaylene had done, mm. my poor working-class <laughs> normal parents went, oh, all right, love. <laughs> so you're a classically trained pianist. That's what you... I mean... When kids are learning an instrument and they're learning it properly, they're going to lessons and they're getting theory and they're learning, you know, being classically trained. It's 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 almost like a it's an activity, but a hobby. But it's almost like a job for some children. It's just an, an indoctrination. Do you know what you're going to do with it? Like, do you think is there a point where you're like, oh well, okay, I'm going to perform in concert halls. I'm going to be a classical pianist. Yeah, well, I'm pleased you've asked that. Nobody's ever ever asked me that, uh, Simon, because I think this is the fatal flaw with a lot of um, that very narrow bit in classical or mm. science probably or any sort of field where you are highly, highly educated in a very specialised field, mm. which is great because it's engrossing and it trains you and you get all sorts of great stuff. But is there a job at the end of mm, it? Mm. Well, back in the day, 
when education was free, even uni education and so on was free. You know, it was it was seen as a, as a process in itself to educate yourself. Um, mm. And nowadays, I think with courses and, and so on, they are more aware of the kind of job that you might be able to get at the end of it because employment's changed so much, et cetera, mm. et cetera. So, yeah, it, it was never... Your 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 goal was that that grade one, grade two, grade mm, three, mm. grade eight, ATCL, LRSM. That's what I say. That's where it's almost like a job. It's just like moving up through the. It's the same sort of graduated steps. It doesn't reaching the next a- level. Absolutely, getting promoted basically. Yeah, 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 yeah. And it's sort of like a religion mm. in a way, in that you're either Catholic or Protestant. You know, it was either um, you know the raw schools of music or or um, what were the other. Um, the, there was another another mm. classical thing, mm. but but you could never think. Well, maybe you could be Buddhist, or maybe mm. you could be Muslim, or maybe you could be, you know, mm. the, 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 maybe there are different scales from mm. major mm. and minor scales, or you know, it's very very sort of narrow. Um, I mean, I love classical music. I love I love Bach. I mm. love the 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 meaning of it and the sense of it and and it, and the yeah, um, non-conflict in a way of it. Um, but I could never, ever have earned my living as a classical pianist, concert mm. pianist. And I knew that I did not want to teach. I've never... I have taught very occasionally, but not enthusiastically. I don't have the patience to teach. It's just move aside. I want to play it. So what do you go and do? You move to Wellington... And I mean, I, I I know your biography. I know what you're going to do. But what's the next? What is the next step after that realization? Uh, Jack Body, yeah. God rest his soul. Mm. I arrived here in Wellington, and I went to stay with this person that I'd met kind of once before. But everybody could go and stay with him. <laughs> mm. He had a big house on the terrace. Jack Body and. He introduced me to all sorts of people. I don't know whether... I can't remember whether he um, directly introduced me to Red Mole, but, um, you know, I realised, well, there was a different way of being a musician. Um, because my degree, I hasten to add, was was a five-year classical piano performance. Mm-hmm. No composition, no orchestration. Now, in the light of the way my career has gone, not mm. only with being a you know a blues boogie piano player and songwriter, but also moreover a film composer. A film composer yeah, it would yeah. have been a hell of a handy <laughs> to have had five minutes studying yeah, yeah. composition or orchestration. Yeah. Um, but no, it was all um, you know that 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 thing. So I started sort of opening up and trying different styles, and I actually had a period um, that was a big. So I suppose the other biggest event in my life from other than the, the breaking of the wrists um, personally that I I decided after all of that well I don't have to I don't have to be this person I don't have to be a musician I'm going to stop I don't have to sit there practicing classical piano every single day um, I've got lots of friends who study philosophy and English and stuff at, at university and I was 22 I think uh, and I'm just going to stop 
and I did. I stopped for three months and I got extremely ill, extremely ill, um, with one of those strange sort of um, sort of diseases that they never really, you know, but I was exhausted and, mm. and my parents had to rescue me and take me back to, to Napier and took, you know, a couple of months of flying in bed and it was deadly serious. Mm-hmm. Um, and I got better again by sitting up in bed and learning some Schubert from the music, too weak to even move to the piano and play. And after that, I thought, right, that's it. I'm not giving up again. Mm, this is you know, who I am. This yeah, is, this is so it goes back to that mindset thing you're talking about, you know. It's almost like a, an illness born of a depression, you yeah, know. probably. Yeah. I mean, I didn't see it like that then. No, Nobody no. did, you know. You didn't even say the word depression mm. at that point. But I just had no sort of um, focus or passion, I guess, and... I was just in, probably incredibly sort of lost and unhappy. And um, and after that, I did start branching out musically. Mm. The penny sort of dropped. Well, you can keep playing. You don't have to um, play just classical music all your life. Let's see where that goes. But I still think, I still believe to this minute that all those years of classical training has made it much, much more difficult for me as a blues and boogie piano player. To consciously unlearn things. To improvise. Yeah, to, to go against technique. Yeah. That's been hardwired. To be, that's been yeah. hardwired because with classical music, you know every single finger on every single note, Simon, and that's the order you play mm. it and that's mm. the notes and they blah, blah, blah. Mm. You know, whereas... Um, you know you're going to have a conversation but you don't know every single word that you're going to say and that's what improvising is and I still think that I am challenged by improvising and lots of people go oh well all that classical training that's you know stood you in great stead Jan and even the technique Mm. Yeah, sure, I can play double octaves and triple trills and all that. Do you use it in blues and boogie? Not really. Yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, I I challenge that uh, classical training is the only way. And there's a lot of young guys coming up, um, or certainly younger than me, Mm. who are loose as a goose with their playing. They fly around. They have brilliant techniques um, and they've never played, they might have played classical for a year or two. Mm. Mm. Um, tell me about Red Mole, because that um, strikes me about as, as being about as far as you can go from the classical discipline, yet you would have been using those very skills to enhance what they were doing. I mean, I met Alan Brunton you know, sort of towards the end of his life and Sally when they were involved in the space in Wellington. I didn't know them well, but they were still both very active and creating things. What sort of force were they and and, and what did you get from Red Mole and how, I mean, you, you, you sort of touched on how you got the introduction, but that you know that that's one of those troops like Blurter that's just I don't <laughs> think it, I don't yeah I know I don't think anyone really knows what it was like unless they were part of it yeah and lots of people were part of it certainly in the cabaret I remember um, once or twice we had something like 16 performers wow. <laughs> it was crazy at the back there um 
Look, it's I'm very grateful to Red Mole for that opportunity um, to. Yes, I did use my classical skills. Um, they just, in a way, I think, if I'd um, gone and then studied jazz or crossed over on a purely musical level, it might have been, in a way, much harder for me. But because mm. I was thinking about the visual and the theatre and not really focused on what I was playing, and then I would just, they'd want to do a different tune or another tune or something, and I'd just have to work it out or go and get the sheet music mm -hmm. back in the day. Um, and so it did branch me out musically um, without me really thinking about it, because I, all I was thinking about was the theatre. Mm. Um, and they were an incredible force, of course, of... I think Alan particularly is a brilliant, was a brilliant poet mm. and um, incredibly sort of courageous people in that they never tried to be liked. They got liked. Mm. Um, I'm talking about their work, mm, their performances. Mm. Well, he had that in him when I was watching him perform sort of 15 years ago or so. Still, you know, there, there was this sort of wild energy about it that, that was like you're either coming for the ride or you're left behind and yeah and, and either could, is fine you know? and it could be terrible yeah yeah that's it, right it could be disastrous and because you've got to fail bad. to succeed yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. that's right um, yeah. but they didn't care mm. they just um you know i'm i'm more conservative i'm talking about as a as an artist really mm -hmm. and performer mm. i like it to be a standard of professionalism mm. and and stuff. So um, I guess I, I outgrew Red Mole, and this is no mm. um, uh, sort of judgment of them, it's more about me. I outgrew them probably a year or two before I've, I finally moved on, um, but I'm incredibly grateful for that they were there and that I could sort of leap in. I mean, I was a founder member. Mm. The very first Red Mole performance was called Whimsy and the Seven Spectacles and it was me and Alan and Sally and Jenny um, can't remember her name wonderful ballet dancer and we did it at the university and it was just mayhem you know, there was um, a ballet dancer and all these guys yelling out get your gears off and, <laughs> you know, and Alan doing serious poetry and me doing something that I had no idea how to play because really I was classically trained, you know, it was, but, but yeah, so I, they always had music as part of, mm. of the theatre. Um, but in the end, um, actors uh, and writers are actors and writers and musicians are musicians. And in the end, I wanted to um, just play music, be centre stage, if you like, not particularly from any sort of egotistical point of view, but just because um, I was sick of, of, of doing being things a, for, for the theatre. Being a bit part or a role in something bigger. Yeah, not, yeah, yeah, yeah. But Red Mole did some cool things, right? Like, toured the country relentlessly, um, went on the road with split ends, things like, you know, these are amazing, amazing things. They were amazing events. I will never ever forget Simon that first night on um, courting the act was mm. the um, was the the split ends tour that was the album they had out mm, at the time mm. and they had the stage all in black and white and they were all done up like court mm. chesters and stuff mm. 
and we started in Invercargill and we were on sort of two and six a concert or whatever. <laughs> yeah, we yeah. had, you know, barely enough of a loaf of bread kind of to mm. keep ourselves going. And somehow or other we got down to Invercargill where it was starting and then went up the country and ended in Auckland. And um, we came out with these um, masks through the back of the, of the audience. And I remember coming out and just looking through this Hessian with this music going that was on, on a tape and people just poking you and like and then they came out and there was these enormous penises you know that that the girls were wearing and it was just I mean it was really heavy mm, mm. it was not Carmen's balcony this was in the cargo yeah well you so did you spend the night in jail after the show or well what? you know um, worse really um after and and because we had you know the short hair and the white face and all mm. that, they thought that we were split ends. <laughs> so the next morning in the paper it said, "And split ends who did theatre before their <laughs> before their right, show." Yeah. So that was it. Yeah. The manager, split ends's manager, John Hopkins at the time, he he said, "You're off the tour." Mm. We didn't even have the money to get back to Wellington. Mm. So, but anyway, they. Um, and none of Slitines were watching us. The next night, my word, they were all in the the wings watching, especially the topless fire blowing at the end, where, you know, it was all round the sort of microphones. I mean, there was no sort of public liability or anything like that in those days. Anyway, um, so it was was just a shock, really. Mm. Um, And then I remember we got, and so then the next night, they always said, and from Wellington, the Red Mole Theatre Group, dead silence. And then, we, you know, we were in Christchurch and so on, and we came up and then we were in Wellington. And they introduced the Red Mole Theatre Group and the audience all went, yeah! <laughs> <laughs> so we went out, somebody knows us! Because you know, they wanted to disassociate us yeah, from yeah. split ends. But the biggest thing for me about that was that I watched Eddie Rayner Every single oh yeah show from a foot away yeah in the in the wings yeah just off stage mm. and indeed they used to get me back in in those days they had a grand piano in the theatres that Eddie would play and they they put Barker's berries it took hours to put these Barker's berry pickups on the strings mm. Mm. Um, many of the strings and Eddie was of delicate health. So I would go in and, um, you know, uh, sound check the, Warm it the up. piano. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So you can get that girl from wow. the theatre. <laughs> strange girl See, from the I, I, I met Eddie for the first time at the start of this year. I was in Auckland and I interviewed him for the podcast. And I, I thought his story would be a little bit like yours, that he was playing the piano from the age of four and that he was some sort of child prodigy. But he was quite late to it. I was quite amazed by that. Because his father was a genius. Yeah, yeah, like music was in his life, but he wasn't, he wasn't, you know, an all, because you watch the performances and you listen to the Split Ends records and everything he's done, and you just imagine a guy who's just spent his entire life hunched over a keyboard. Yeah, 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 exactly, and yeah, and not not the case at all, reckons he was quite the late bloomer, sort of Well, that's what I mean about guys who haven't come at it from classical. Mm. And he's certainly got his own style. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so he can touch on those things, but 
yeah, he's not fr- not bound. No, and not yeah, not from that world and not bound and on a weekly basis. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. The other thing I have to say that I got from from Red Mole was the ability to work with Midge Marsden and the Country mm. Flowers because mm. they were the band um, that Red Mole got um, for after the cabarets and they did some bits and pieces in the show. So mm. I was a musical director from Red Mole. Um, solo and they were and that was Bud Hooper on drums Neil Hannon who I uh, ended up working with for many many years Mm. and I'm still working with on and off Um, Richard Kennedy amazing um, left handed guitarist Mm. and of course Midge Marsden and those guys were so good to me Simon, I'm really really grateful to them uh, because really I mean I was hopeless in terms of the style (laughs) that they were playing but the other thing was that synthesizers came out um, and that um, because they were shorter because they felt so different from piano I didn't have that physical I wasn't bound to the physicality of Mozart fingering or something Mm. so I could sort of I could play differently somehow. It really helped me mm. changing over. And I, I still can remember so clearly as if it was last night when Midge gave me my first solo. Mm. And he went, Jan, you know what Midge is like. <laughs> yeah, He's yeah, yeah. The most extraordinary performer. Jan on the piano. And it was like, <laughs> and I just froze. I was absolutely terrified. And I had to play something. Mm. And when you have to play something, you do play something. Mm. And, and sometimes you listen back and go, well, it wasn't that bad. Mm. So, and Neil would set up the keyboard. I didn't even know where it plugged in, you know. <laughs> um, and they were so good. Midge would, I remember ending up at his house so many times and he'd play me this, listen to that, Jen, listen to that bit there, little feet or whatever it was. And he exposed me um, to so much music. I mean, he, he used to just do that to to everybody he probably doesn't even remember that he did it yeah I think his I mean obviously his um you know and I've talked to Midge but obviously his musical contribution to the country is is significant but I think um he could have just played this role as a kind of tastemaker and DJ for a lot of people he introduced a lot of people to a lot of music and a lot of good music you know he He he, he shared his his tastes for people. Passion. Yeah, his mm. passion. Yeah, yeah, mm. yeah, and his, his knowledge. Well, Phil Manning, who mm. went to Australia, I, I've worked and played a lot with Phil. I absolutely adore Phil. I mean, he's the most wonderful songwriter and guitarist. Mm. And uh, we just really love playing together and working together. And, um, yeah, which is pretty amazing that this guy from New Zealand sort of went over there. And, I mean, that was Chain and the beginning of Australian mm. blues. Mm. Mm. So... What happens next? I mean, Red Mole and and the Country Flyers end up up and sort of based in Auckland. Is that well, right? Well, no. Um, Red Mole went to Auckland. Yeah. Um, and Neil, um, somehow or other, we ended up... Uh, I, th- I think we did a university tour of New Zealand. We went to New York, in fact, first, and Red Alert was the band, which became the Drongos. And then there was a big decision to make, which was whether to um, uh, sort of stay with the Drongos and probably become this expat living in New York, Mm. probably playing jazz on 
49th Street um, or come back to New Zealand. And <coughs> Neil was the <coughs> was the extra musician there. And I thought, no, I, I want to come back. And so Neil and I started doing stuff together. Um, and the Drongos, which was Gene McAllister, Gene and, and, and Tony um, McMaster and Stan and, of course, Richard Kennedy, they stayed for, for a long time and, mm. and did really quite well in, in New York. Um, and meanwhile, Neil and I came back with Red Moll and we did this university thing. And that was um, tour of the campuses. And that was sort of the end, really. Yeah. I think it might have been Ghost Right. That was when I thought, no, it six years. Yeah, yeah. It wasn't three months. Yeah, yeah. You know, I was, I was musical director for Red Mole for a long, long time. Mm. I mean, I did bits and pieces outside. Um, but that was my my thing. That was your gig. That yeah, was your job. Yeah, it was. And um, during very formative years too. Mm, mm. And so anyway, um, by then I must have been about 29, 28, 29, and went up to Auckland and Neil and I decided, right, we're going to form a band. And um, Hello Sailor had just um, split up and Harry Lyon mm. was there and so I went into this sort of rock thing um, in coup d'etat with Harry, who's a very um, a brilliant songwriter mm. and actually a brilliant manager. Harry's really, um, he'd been in the industry a long, long time. Yeah. And he was very, very canny with getting us a record contract and promoting things properly and, and that sort of thing. And he had a profile that yeah, was bigger yeah, than, yeah. than Neil's and mine was, you know, like a theatre group in Wellington. That meant nothing in yeah. rock and roll, really. Yeah, but he was part of, you know, I mean, Hello Sailor was our Rolling Stones. Uh, they were indeed. You know, and, they were indeed. And I got the feeling that he sort of, you talk about him being a good manager, I got the feeling he was the, the you know, he was as big a part of the party as any of them, sure, but he was also the guy that kind of was a go-between between Dave and Graham. You know, he knew how to manage both of their temperaments and their songwriting styles, and he could work with both of them as well as produce stuff on his own. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Harry's still alive. Harry is making great music. He put his first solo album out last year, and it was excellent. Oh, I've heard it. Yeah, it's wonderful. It's really I'm good. still in contact yeah. with Harry. Yeah. Harry's sane and... I mean, without the edge of Dave's fragility, mm. and look, we could talk for hours about them, couldn't mm. we? Because they were such a huge creative force, even yeah. Ricky Ball, yeah. amazing drummer. Um, but without, you know, Graham's craziness and, and all that sort of yeah. thing, um, would they have been Hello Sailor? No. Mm. But Harry was almost, um, and I, I don't want to sort of um, downgrade him, but almost the straight guy. Yeah, yeah. Um, who is yeah. a creative force. Yeah. Very, very creative. But Harry is very sane and very, you know, happily mm. married, shall mm, we say, mm, that, mm. that kind of person. Mm, and, mm. Um, and, yeah, we, I remember the day that he came up with a strange little, you know, sort of song, Doctor I Like Your Medicine, which didn't have that sort of reggae beat and mm. then Neil went oh you could go da 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 and then I went yeah you could go uh, uh, da 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 
So Neil and I were part of the sound mm. of that song. Oh yeah, I was just gonna. Song, I was yeah. just gonna say. I hope you don't gloss over Coup d'état because I mean you're a big presence on the first single, No Music on My Radio. Yes, that's which right. Which is a great song. You know, I think you know the. the because Coup d'etat is always talked about as a footnote to the Hello Sailor story in a way, so Doctor I Like Your Medicine, which becomes the big hit, is, is the song that's referenced. But No Music On My Radio is an amazing song. I reckon it's stood up really well. I, I, I often play it in DJ songs. Oh, great. Yeah. yeah. Haven't heard it for years. <laughs> <It's>, but, um, <laughs> you should have a listen to it. Right. You know? Yeah, yeah. Um, actually, um, I remember some of the kind of rock and this was when the uh, the first Yamaha electric piano moved into a grand um, 76 note um, thing and pounding that standing up and some of the rock music that Kude Tar played. I remember a song of Harry's called Allende um, and it was just so exciting. Mm. And so, yeah, there was... Um, I mean, in a sense, Doctor I Like Your Medicine was quite different musically. Mm, and mm. I know that a lot of the reviews criticised us as a, you know, white lawnmower reggae. <laughs> I think it was described. And, you know, and, and, and the other thing that happened with that track, which I want to share with you mm. because I find it quite um, interesting, is that we were in the studio and, and I said, it sounds a bit sort of, slow or serious or something, slow. And so we took it up. And you know how Dr. I, Dr. Mm. Riley, mm. your medicine, it's got a slight chipmunks sound mm. to it. And that's because it's very speeded up. So all the voices and all the sounds are brighter and the tempo is slightly faster because in those days you couldn't mm. speed up reel-to-reel tape that wide mm. without it changing pitch mm. and um, it's probably up like a quarter tone or something. Um, and I think that that's what made it really bright yeah. and vibrant yeah. on radio. Because the other frustrating thing about making records in um, 1979 and 80 was that you would hear David Bowie on the radio and it was really loud and, and, and sort of you could hear it all and then your track would come on. Now it might have been um, quite a good song and quite well played but we didn't have the production skills. Mm -hmm. um, they, they didn't record, they didn't actually imprint loud enough into mm. the tape and they didn't we didn't understand you know compression and all sorts of stuff probably mm. um and so your track always was much quieter you know you had to literally turn the dial up mm, to get mm. the same effect and it made it very much harder for all kiwi bands to to break through on radio mm, mm. so what happens with coup d'etat there's only the one album you go on you do some shows obviously it's a it's a it's a um yeah, people are interested in it because, as you say, Harry's come from Hello Sailor, so he's got currency. And um, and you have a couple of hit singles. Um, what happens with the band? Well, the band was always put together to go to Australia. Now, dare I say this in my <laughs> defence, <laughs> is that we were always, <clears throat> along with... Mm. Um, you know, My Sex and Dragon and everybody else, yeah, the Crocodiles, yeah. the list is endless yeah, yeah, yeah. of Kiwi bands. What you did was you got a record contract you and you went around the circuit the, for six months or a year yeah. and then you went to Sydney. Yeah. Well, Sydney. Yeah, yeah. Why not Melbourne? I don't know. Yeah. And I remember even Midge saying to me, Sid or Melbourne, Jan, yeah. Sid or Melbourne. 
And I thought, Melbourne, I don't know. Nobody goes to Melbourne, do they? Isn't Sydney? Now I actually bitterly regret in many ways that I didn't go to Melbourne, but that's a, that's another story. But, um, yeah, so it was that was always the intent. And then I became last man standing. Mm. Um, and that I they, when it came to it, and we never really, I have to say, found the, the fourth member for that band. It was... You know, we used to jokingly say we really should call ourselves coup d'etat, <laughs> coup of the three of us, because, mm. um, I mean, we ended up with Paul Dunningham on drums, who's a snappy drummer, um, but we never really sort of sort of found, we went through quite a few sort of drummers, but anyway, um, Neil, by that stage, had sort of fallen in love and married, and Harry was married and had, had children, and... Um, I wasn't. I always intended to move on, um, so I did. And um, sadly, really, that the whole band didn't go over, at least for a period of time. Mm. Um, really a, a great pity in some ways, mm. um, in many ways, on, on, from many points of view, that Doctor I Like Your Medicine never made it across the Tasman. Because mm. I think it could have been a hit mm. in Australia. It could have been a hit but it was barely shown because the band wasn't there mm. to tour around. Um, so I started again from nothing, absolutely nothing, at the age of 30. Um, and I just thought, well, get a record contract and go out and do some gigs. Well, it wasn't that easy. Yeah. I was no one yeah. from nowhere. Worse, I was no one from New Zealand. I didn't even have a band. Um, <clears throat> I didn't know anyone. I didn't know other musicians. I was there with my then-husband, um, and I was really very isolated, um, didn't have any money or support systems. Um, it was a stupid move, really, in many ways. Um, but the thing I discovered then was the click track. And I'm really proud of that because I sat in that darkened room in that <laughs> hovel of a house in Chippendale, the worst area in the centre of Sydney, um, with this drum machine and I had never ever worked with a drum machine or a click track. I'd worked with metronomes, you know, way, way back in the day when I was first learning piano, mm. but that hadn't been for decades. Yeah. And um, when I, this is an absolutely true story, when I got that first, they were Roland RD or whatever they were called, 303s or 808 or some, some drum machine everybody had. I took it back to the shop because I thought it was speeding up and slowing down, yeah, and yeah. that's the absolute truth. <laughs> and I was just shocked at how erratic my timing was. And the one thing that I have really strongly um, in my playing, um, whether I play solo with the band or mostly it's with the band now, is that I am rock solid time-wise. Um, my left hand, and I think for blues and for boogie, that driving mm. rhythmic thing, I feel that in my heart and soul, mm. and I and I don't. I mean, would I make records with click tracks? Never, but it trained me. So I got off the mm. treadmill of live performance, and I was really just sat there going back to square one with a four track TAC machine, writing songs, pathetic demos. <laughs> um, Stuart Rubin, bless him, at that stage was over at Polygram and. Australia, he encouraged me, but he couldn't really sign me. And I put together finally a band called The Tribe, 
with a huge Māori drummer called Minamotu, mm. and um, we did get a contract with what was then CBS Records, Sony. Um, we had some minor sort of, not hits exactly, we got on the bottom of the, yeah. um, you know, the charts and toured around and, um, you know, went in, into that rock scene. But the reality of it was that I never, ever fitted in. In many ways, I never fitted in as a rock musician. Mm. I was never really happy musically in coup d'etat or the tribe or pure rock bands. Mm. My or background, even Red Mole towards the end of it. It's funny how, hearing you say this, you've, your career, the stages in your career has been you trying on hats to find the one that fits. So when does that, when do you find that? Because you found it. You've I had it for a while. It. I found my yeah. thing. And yeah. I'll never, ever change. Yeah. <clears throat> I'm totally comfortable playing blues and boogie. And mm. that's a huge category. That's enough for the rest of my life. Because when I first saw you play, <coughs> it was in the early 2000s at a show at Circa Theatre. And um, you were doing <clears throat> boogie woogie stride piano. And... I think I must have met you at the, you know, after that gig very briefly. But yeah, you were fully formed. You know, you yeah. you were in that zone then, and you've been in it since. And it's like you've taken all these different, you know, it's like you've. It's almost like my reading of it is that you worked through the improv theatre stuff to being a pop musician to being a rock musician to unshackle yourself from classical. Absolutely. Yeah, and then you get. And when does the film composing come into it? Well, the film composing was always happening. Mm. Um, but the thing, just going back yeah. to the style, um, my own style now, when we were in New York way back in 1979, I did go out and hear Professor Longhead. Right. Live. It's funny you say that because I was going to say to you, when do people like Professor Longhead and Winifred Atwell come into your listening because they're major touchstones for you now. They are. Look, mm. I don't play New Orleans-style mm. um, piano. Mm. I, I can play a bit of it, but I, I don't have a great feel for it. I'm a, a boogie. Mm. Um, but I, when I heard Professor Longhair playing live, he had a, a, a record out called Live on the Queen Mary, an album. And um, I went home that night and I just stayed up all night. I bought the album and I learned everything off it and I've specifically learned an instrumental called Gone So Long and I still play that groove and I started playing that tune Gone So Long and I played it from then on. Mm. Now this is 1979. Why did the penny not drop? <laughs> no matter what band I was in, no matter what gig I was at, that tune always worked for me. Why did the penny not drop that maybe I should just play that? It, it didn't for, for <laughs> mm, some reason. Mm. And that tune, I mean, I still play elements of it now. And that was the beginning of me finding this simple groove. I mean, I'm not a complicated player. I didn't go from classical, as one might expect, into jazz. Mm. Um, to studying with, there was Colin Heming. 
Hemingworth, is that his mm. name, who was up in Auckland, and he did teach jazz. Yeah, I yeah. could have gone down that track in many ways. I, another regret that I didn't, but I didn't. I came from classical into rock and not really understanding chord structures and certainly not even 12 bars. But my playing now is very simple. It's quite limited in a way, but I do what I do do very well. Mm-hmm. You know, my groove and my... My, but I can't fly around with lots of chords and all that sort of thing. Well, you're also doing that thing that I don't know if you if if you picked it up in any way from him. But you're also doing that thing that Midge Marsden's done so well. You're sharing music, you know, not just your own, but the stuff that's informed yours. You're doing shows where you tell people about Professor Long here. You tell people about New Orleans. Even if you're not playing directly in that style, you you point people to other musicians and other styles, and there's a you know it's interesting all the different things you tie up. There's that performative theatre aspect that probably comes from Red Mole of you doing actual storytelling rather than just you know concert banter. It's actually actual narrative sometimes, like the Winifred Atwell show. Yeah, so look, I all love these that. different threads uh, you know have, have it's 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 almost like we we're wondering together how it took so long for you to find the style but you had to go through all these different things and then you've actually pulled elements of them all whether you've maybe even known it or not well that's what i love about <coughs> blues blues is inclusive mm. <coughs> blues is really about all of us um you know um i mean you sing lines back or yeah, whatever. Yeah. Whereas rock is a sort of look at me, look at me, look mm-hmm. at me um, performance. And yes, I do, I, I don't care um, now to tell an audience how old I am or anything like that. I, I am who I am. And I think audiences like to know who you mm-hmm. are. Um, I'm, a, I'm a middle-aged mother you know, I'm just whatever, um, and but not everybody will like you, and not everybody will like your music. Great, they can go off and listen to somebody else. But I think that if you are honest about who you are, both um, when you talk to the audience on stage, when you are yourself on stage, and and when you're playing to them, they will accept you. If you're pretending to be mm. something you're not, they will back off eight mm. bars, and they've backed off. And why shouldn't they? You know, there's 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 a line um, in a song, um, and the and the singer will die for the lie in his voice. And uh, one of the old black blues guys with the one eye and no teeth, living in the back shed of you know Alabama, that um, someone I knew travelled a million miles to go and learn how to play blues, and he said. The the essence of blues, never play a note you don't believe in, never sing a, a, mm. a word you haven't lived. And that's what I love about blues, that mm. it's real and inclusive. And I can, I mean, basically, you know, boogie um, is sort of sped up blues in a way. Um, you know, that's where mm. I'm coming from, and I can be honest, and I can sing about anything. And Well, I was thinking when you were coming around here, I was thinking, um, you know, Keith Jarrett, has a conversation I think when he plays solo he's having a conversation with his piano people are lucky to be able to hear that because he's incredible Elton John or someone like that is actually more 
also an amazing player, obviously, but he's having a conversation with his audience. You seem to, when I've watched you play, you seem to be able to do both. You're directly having a conversation with your piano, but you are bringing the audience in all of the time and having a separate conversation with them as well. Yeah, well, look, it, it's not, it, it wasn't easy for me to find that either. I mean, I never used to be able to say anything to the audience. Mm. And whenever I did, it came out tense. I couldn't, you know, I, it was worse than mm. not speaking at all, you mm. know. Um, and that's only come from, yeah, just relaxing, being myself and being confident, I suppose, and open. And I think it's gone with finding your own style. You know, yeah, this is me. Mm. You know, this is me. If you don't like it, fine, totally understand go away and listen to somebody else, you know. <laughs> um, but this is me, and I'm mm. not going to change because I'm this age and stage and... It's um, hard earned. Yeah, you know. yeah, it is. It yeah. is for, for all musicians. Yeah, yeah. Um, so can we talk a little bit about the film composing? Because I'm interested in it because, uh, you know, someone who has a musical career... Um, releases records, songs, and then goes off and makes soundtracks as well. That's quite common. But you look at someone like Peter Gabriel, his film scores are fantastic, but they sound like him. Peter Gabriel. Which is why they work, because people want that. You have some score that is you at the piano, and it's recognisably you if people have listened to you, but you also, you seem to disappear from the scores you it's you as a composer rather than you as a player I think I mean that is a compliment yeah look Simon it's all about the film for me Mm. whatever the film needs and in many ways film composing has been my day job Mm, mm. (laughs) and I love it it's Mm. engrossing it's creative and um, and really it's where Red Mole went Mm. And, and that experience of working watching Alan Brunt and blink and banging a drum mm. at that moment um, is very much where my film composition has come from. I just look at the film and I mean a lot of well, all the films I've worked on, unfortunately there's never been one that required a boogie piano score. <laughs> <laughs> if only. I'm still waiting. Mm. Um, but you know, if you listen to my year with Helen where yeah. it was all, you know, a woman's choir with piano and percussion and That's so amazing that. That's the f- I mean, it's an incredible film for a lot of reasons. Obviously it's subject, um, obviously it's director and and the conversation between them and the timing of it. But actually the first thing that struck me about that film was the music. And it's just like, wow, this is this is setting this up just perfectly. It's unusual music for mm, me mm. as much well, as... Well, I talked with Gaylene about that, She was, you know, and, we, you know, we were chatting about that and saying it, it really struck me as the most... Uh, what's the... What, what am I looking for? The least overtly you <laughs> that I've heard in, mm. a, in a film score that you've been involved in. It is, it yeah. is. Although I, I've done, you know, I've done a huge mm, amount in mm, Australia that mm. has never come over here but certainly that was an odd score for Mm. me but I think also the classical training and um, stuff I listen to see I'm a huge fan of Hauschka you know Mm -hmm. the German um, prepared piano although not always plays with prepared and I I just think his music is is amazing Um, 
And so I listen to all sorts of other stuff as a, a kind of a relief, I suppose. Mm. A release is something very different. And because I did have this strange, checkered kind of musical career where I came from here, there and everywhere, the film music was always something that was going on as well. Um, I also, I suppose, I have to say over and above everything the thing I think that my family background and maybe this applies to Gaylene as well um, gave us was that we were working class and what you did was you worked Mm. you worked down the mines you know you had a milk run or you ran a fish and chip shop you rolled your sleeves up girl and you get out there and you work and I think that we have both brought that same kind of um, <coughs> ethic to... Creative pursuits, yeah. ...to the industry, which yeah. is a nightmare. Yeah. Arts and entertainment is a nightmare <laughs> yeah. of an industry yeah. to, for anybody to yeah. paddle a canoe through and not end up serving coffees at the end of it. It's, yeah. And some of the most talented people do. Mm. It's very, very sad. It breaks people. Mm. But I think that I always thought, right, you can't be... Not, not necessarily even a, in a totally cynical way, because I like to think that all the, all my decisions weren't cynical, but they were certainly practical. I did not want to teach classical piano in Palmerston North. I did not want to end up as being that person. No disrespect to the people that have. And <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. wonderful teachers, and it's very important, but it wasn't going to be me. Yeah. So I saw an opportunity, and I leapt in, and I then I went into rock music, and then whatever, but it was always to keep performing and keep earning. And with film scores, well, I didn't have when Sam Neill approached me and said, can you write music for my film? I absolutely didn't have a clue. Not a clue in the world how to do it. But he said he'd pay me. Right, I'll work that one out. Yeah, it's a great motivator. (laughs) It was. And he'd seen me with Red Mole. Yeah, so he knew you could play. Yeah, (laughs) and I wanted to earn my living, and I have earned my living ultimately, Mm. writing and playing my own music, being on stage in my own concerts or film scores. And that is a huge achievement in Australasia, really, Mm. for, for anybody on any sort of, I mean, it's a boutique level, yeah. shall we say. Yeah. I've never had, you know, Dave Dobbin hits and I've or I've never written film scores that have gone worldwide. Mm. Um, but I have kept putting one foot in front of the other and and working and earning. So the film for, uh, forty plus years. For forty well, I think um, you know, I was I'm sixty eight now, so I was twenty two, twenty three when mm. I when I finished. Um, you know, it's 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 got it's a long, long time. And also, moreover, Simon, I don't want to stop. Mm. I'm very healthy and, and fit. My arms and yeah. fingers and my brain so far is still working. Yeah. <coughs> and I'm working on another film in, in Australia at the moment um, and a documentary. I think that's the other thing is that documentaries often require, mm. um, you know, different approaches depending on the subject matter and so on. In fact, I'm judging the on the panel that's judging the Silver um, Silver Scroll Film Composition Awards this mm. year in mm. New Zealand. I've, I've just, um, we're having our conference call soon um, to decide on, you know, the winners there. But um, so, and it's, uh, there's some wonderful film music coming out of New Zealand, some fantastic yeah. entries yeah. there. So, um, you know, it's, 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 I've loved it. 
<laughs> the, but I wouldn't have been happy just writing music for films. But the docu- the explosion of documentary, which really happened nearly 20 years ago in terms mm. of it being a legitimate um, film experience, something you buy tickets to and go at the cinema, that really has has opened doors for film composers, right? Because as you, as you were saying, like documentary requires something different and, and often a lot of music. You know, you look at... You know, well, some of Galen's documentaries, you know, it's it's talking heads and actually showing photographs and recreations of scenes. So you need music to help tell that story. So sometimes there's, you know, sometimes there's more music in a documentary than there is in a fictional feature film. Yes. Well, I often think there's too much music in mm. all films. <laughs> I think it's about mu- where music isn't as much as where music is. Um, yeah, that's really true. It was a Sydney Film Festival. It was just on. I mean, I, I, I'd, I'd like to add that one offshoot of that, which has been um, coincidental, as it seems everything I've done <laughs> um, in my career sort of has been in, in a way. You know, Harry happened to be there and Mm-mm. Red Mole happened to be there or and whatever. Sam Neill happened to ask. Uh, Sam yeah. happened to ask because he happened to see me <laughs> yeah. Red Mole and, and made a film called Red Mole on the Road, you mm. know, blah, blah, blah. Um, but moreover, um, from a chance remark about my old auntie, my father's sister who played um, to silent movies down in the flea pit in the bluff, mm. um, my father got into Buster Keaton films, you know, for free carrying his sister's music. Um, uh, as I've been a long-standing um, on the committee of the Australian Guild of Screen Composers, and um, they needed somebody to write and perform music for a silent movie. And one of the composers said, you could do that, Jan, couldn't you? I said, oh, well, actually, my auntie used to. Mm. So I've also uh, just completed a huge score for the Sydney Film Festival for a silent film. Wow. I love doing silent films. Yeah. I'd love to come to New Zealand and, and play some more silent films because, for me, this is the perfect combination of my abilities as a, as a piano player and performer. And you keep going for an hour and a half, Simon, mm. and you do not stop. You might come down to one note, but you don't actually stop. And my understanding of dramaturgy and working with film, and I just... I've, I've done about... 20 silent films and performed wow, them yeah. at many folk, you know, Woodford Folk Festival and all sorts of festivals and um, the MCA and the, uh, you know, Museum of Contemporary Art and the Sydney Opera House and, you know, I haven't haven't done a lot of them, performed a lot of them in New Zealand, but um, that is something that I've yeah, I wish, doing. I wish I'd been to more. I remember, like, way back at university seeing... Um, the very old film *Birth of a Nation*, which is which is kind of racist propaganda, but it's but it's an incredible film for its time. But that's nearly three hours long, and I remember going to a screening, a, a showing of that with a live pianist working, <laughs> up, you know, working for nearly three hours. It was amazing, like it was mm. incredible. Who's taken off on the yeah. on a stretcher? Yeah, uh, it was, yeah. That might have been um, the English guy. Um, yeah, Brent, I think his name is. Okay. Uh, his surname. Yeah. Yeah, I, I really like his stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's a marathon, and you mm. have the utmost respect for the silent movie pianists who all went yeah. out of work the, the day talkies came in. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, but, but they performed several times a day. And Amazing, night. yeah. You know, they, they were absolute marathon runners. Mm, mm, mm. Mm. Do you want to plug the tour and what you're doing, anything else you're doing recently? 
Yeah, well, look, I'm so looking forward to this uh, 20 days. I was going to say, you're sure. playing everywhere. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's like the old days. <laughs> it, is like the, it is like the 1970s, yeah, yeah. which is great. Yeah. Um, I'm very grateful to Simon Varr from Yellow mm. Eye, who mm. booked and is promoting the tour and going to all sorts of places that that we've never played. Well, I'll put a link up. When, when people hear this, they'll be able to click on the link to look at all of the dates, yeah. Well, there will be a concert near you, folks. Yes, yes. <laughs> Unless you live um, in the in the middle to the south of the South Island. Yeah. Um, where, where we've played earlier this year, um, but we're playing, you know, Blenheim Bay of Many Coves, Picton, um, Fongaray, Auckland, Ponsonby, and Auckland Grey Lynn, mm. Lee, Putaru, Pyroar, Tauranga, um, Carpety, Eastbourne, the Martinborough wow. Jazz Festival, Bay of Islands Jazz and Blues Festival. Wow. Um, so it's it's just fabulous. Yeah. Um, and it's such a, I mean, New Zealand's the best place in the world to tour. I've done a lot of touring in Europe and, and stuff. And, you know, to be, one's heart is always connected. Yeah. yeah, yeah always. Yeah. I miss New Zealand more rather yeah. than less as the years go by. And the reality of actually dying in Australia <laughs> does not thrill me. You know, it's, it's a peculiar thing. Mm. There's something mm. about that being of that culture. Um, you know, I'm wearing my greenstone from, mm. from Greymouth, that, that identity and that kind of attachment to the land. You never, for all the years I've lived in Australia for half my life, yeah. um, probably over half my life, but you never feel the same connection. I mean, I'm a Sydney sider. Mm. I'll never be an Australian on the Sydney side. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I'm, I'm just loving this whole month um, of touring New Zealand. And obviously, you've got plenty of options. You've got your film stuff. You, you're playing shows. Your most recent album is played again, Jam. But you don't, this isn't going to be your last album. You're still going to make albums. You think? Yeah, look, I'm in the middle of starting, mm. uh, like in the middle mm. of songwriting, mm. um, and I'm adding some new tunes into um, 88 Pianos I Have Known, which has yeah. projections involved with it as well. That's yeah. the, the show that we're performing um, with Nigel Masters, the wonderful bass player from Kokomo. He's um, playing with us for most of the shows, and then those ones he can't do. Paul Dine, oh, yeah. who's absolutely yeah. fabulous, yeah. played with us last night on Radio New Zealand. Um, so it's a trio with projections. Um, and, yeah, I've got um, six or seven new tunes for a new record, which will probably be called Boogie Woman, mm. which is uh, my one of my latest tunes, appropriately. Yeah. Um, Simon, I'm waving the flag for Boogie <laughs> Woogie and so looking forward at Cafe 121 um, in, in a week and a half or whenever it is to hearing a young woman, Emily, somebody in Auckland who's a Boogie Woogie Oh, whiz. wow, yeah, right. Um, so, and, and trying, I've written a book uh, called She Plays Boogie and Blues with my German colleague um, to teach younger people to play Boogie trying to promote yes you're right the style mm. not just me 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 and mm. my what i do mm. my music yeah go and listen to these other players like find out all about it and yeah. if the younger mm. guys aren't playing boogie it will disappear yeah there are a lot of younger people in germany it's a it's a quite a 
explosion, uh, extraordinary wow. uh, yeah. 3,000 boogie piano players yeah. in Germany. That's a, 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 they're fanatical. Mm. Um, and I would love to see more young people coming through. She's going to play, you know, as a, before I start in my show, and I wish I had one of those yeah. in every concert. Well, we've covered a lot, and and just on an hour. Wow. I'm really grateful that you. I'm really grateful that we connected, and I got to hear all these stories. Thanks. Well, thanks so much, Simon, for your ongoing interest in <laughs> yeah. in my checkered uh, career. Um, you know, this this stuff that uh, I remember they asked David Bowie, was there anything he regretted musically? Was there anything he regretted yeah. in terms of listening back to your music? And sometimes you cringe and go, like you said, no music on my radio. And you go, yeah. oh, really? Um, but uh, he said, I regret the drugs. I don't regret any of the music, good yeah. or bad. Yeah. And I think I feel the same, not in terms of the drugs, but in terms of the music is that... It's all stepping even if stones. It fails, it's all, yeah. it's all um, to get to somewhere else. And I believe I have got somewhere. Yeah. You know, musically I'm talking yeah. creatively. Yeah. And I, my thing is, yes, I am going to make a new record. Yes, I am going to write more film scores. Yes, I'd love to perform and compose and perform for more silent movies. I want the next creative creative thing. If you are not moving forward creatively, you die. Mm. If you are just going out there and playing the same songs and doing the same thing, um, you will be bored and your audience will be bored and drop off. You must. That's the very nature of playing music and writing music and singing music, is that you must be moving forward creatively. Mm.